Our experiences of travel are all unique. Our travel experiences can be impacted by so many different factors. Our personal identities, our ethnicities, our mental health, and our gender. All of these things can impact our experience of not just travel, but the world. Welcome to Alpaca My Bags. I'm your host, Erin, and today we'll discover how a diagnosis of chronic illness has impacted one woman's experience of travel. According to the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, MS is an unpredictable disease of the central nervous system that disrupts the flow of information within the brain and between the brain and body. Today, more than 2.3 million people worldwide have been diagnosed with MS. The cause of MS is still unknown. The progress, severity, and specific symptoms of MS in any one person can't yet be predicted. Symptoms can vary widely, from fatigue to muscle spasms, vision problems, and mobility issues. And although there is no cure for MS at the moment, there are a few FDA-approved drugs that have been shown to modify the course of the disease. These facts about MS are useful for understanding the disease itself, but they don't convey the experience of MS or of chronic illness. Today we're chatting with Brittany. She's the woman behind the blog, The Traveling MS, where she shares travel content as well as insight into how MS has impacted her approach to travel. You may have noticed that Brittany actually did a takeover of my Instagram recently, and following that, well, we knew we had to have her on the show. Welcome, Brittany. Can we start by asking you to introduce yourself? Hi, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, as you said, my name is Brittany. I'm from a small island in the Bahamas called Abaco. And I left home in 2012 to start traveling and volunteering. Um, and all that was going well up until a surprise diagnosis in 2016. Two years later, I started my website and travel blog, The Traveling MS, to sort of chronicle just all the time that I've spent on the road and also what I've learned from MS. I wanted to start out by acknowledging just how tough chronic illness can be because it's often so invisible to others. I know from personal experience that even describing for others the feeling of my generalized anxiety disorder can be so empowering because I just find in general not a lot of people understand what GAD feels like. So I wanted to start by asking you to describe how MS feels for you, and not just physically, but like mentally and emotionally. Well, with MS, especially when I was first diagnosed, I felt uncertain. And to some extent, I still feel that way now. Sometimes I, I genuinely feel afraid of my own body and what it can do to itself because it's an autoimmune condition and I get this awful sense that my body is attacking itself and I don't have any power. MS is so unpredictable. Some of the symptoms are often invisible. And sure, I'm happy, I'm healthy today, but a new active lesion, a relapse, a flare-up can change all of that in an instant. So I guess you must like grapple with a lot of like feeling of uncertainty. Absolutely. At the top of the show, I shared some basic information about MS, but I think it would be helpful to hear a bit from you about MS. 
On your blog, you mentioned the term relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis. Could you explain what this means and also share anything else that you think is important to know when discussing MS? Yeah, so relapsing, remitting MS, it describes this cycle of damage and healing to my central nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord. MS is chronic. For many, it's invisible. You know, some people who use a cane, who have to use a wheelchair, and who their their muscle spasms are a lot more intense and visible. Um, but for some, we just walk around and you don't see anything that's going on with them. So for some reason, our immune systems attacks the myelin sheath, which is the protective covering around our nerves, which helps electric signals travel from our brain to our entire body. And this attack, it causes inflammation in small patches around the brain or the spinal cord, wherever it was attacked. And um, these, like this little group of attacks, they're called lesions, and this is visible on an MRI and the period and relapsing remitting MS, when we experience symptoms, you know, that happens but because of the inflammation, the brain's not able to just send all these signals and communication to the rest of our brain, it gets worse, and then the symptoms get better. And that's what the relapsing remitting, it's this time of things are really, really bad. And then the remittance, then they're not so bad, the symptoms are starting to disappear. You know, you start to get this feeling of, did something actually happen to me? You know, because it's just, it's there and then it's gone sometimes quite quickly. But the effects can last days, weeks, and recovering from them can take months as well. During the relapse, which led to my diagnosis, I gradually lost and regained the vision in the center of one of my eyes over days. But my vision was still off for months and unfortunately I couldn't drive. (laughs) Wow. So they're pretty long, like it's almost like they're waves of symptoms and it sounds like they can be quite long. Right. And the intensity, you just, you don't know how intense it's going to be. You know, something happens and then you just have to to deal with it from there. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about how this has impacted your life later on. But before we talk more about that, I wanted to ask, like you mentioned in 2012, you left your home in the Bahamas. What was your life like, like prior to your diagnosis? Where were you at? Like, what were you planning? And I know you were volunteering and traveling a lot. Can you share a bit about like, just what sort of stage in life you were at? I, if I rewind a little bit more, I went to Florida. That's where I got my bachelor's degree. Um, a lot of Bahamians, we love to go to Canada. We love to go to the U.S. Ooh, we're so exotic. Look at us, you know, getting educated all over the world, you know, we say. And um, so I was in the, the U.S. for four years. And it was after that four years, 2012, a friend of mine told me about this volunteering opportunity. And I decided not to go home. So I was, I was optimistic, you know. I did not think about my health once. That was not something I thought about. And I guess that's the definition of just taking it for granted because it was it was definitely that that thing that just sat in the corner you know I just you know chuck it in my bag let's go on the road I don't think about it I, I didn't nurture it thinking about my health was not a priority I just I heard about an opportunity I bought a ticket and I went I think that your comment about nurturing health I think like especially in your 
early mid-20s, that's like such a relatable feeling. <laughs> Similarly, I I definitely didn't think about my health a lot, like especially prior to being diagnosed with GAD personally. And also I, I think like it's interesting right now because with coronavirus, I think everyone is sort of having a reckoning with this. It's like suddenly like all of us, no matter our age, no matter where we live, we all are being forced now to consider our health in a way that we normally don't. So the course of your life changed when you discovered you had MS. Can you paint a picture of life for you in that moment? Where were you and what were you pursuing when you started to notice something was wrong? How did you realize that something was wrong? And then what was the diagnosis process like? It was, let's see, 2016. I was entering my fourth year as a volunteer, very confident in my work. I, I was just, uh, I like to think I was living it up in Santa Cruz, you know, I love that area. Could I just interrupt quickly to ask, what kind of volunteer work were you doing? So I volunteered for persons um, with additional support needs. In California, it was adults. And then in Scotland later, it was children. That was the first time I worked with children but uh, mostly adults with additional support needs. So yeah, I was very, very proud of the little life that I, I felt like I created on my own without my, my, you know, my family's help or support. And there was a conference that was happening in Vermont. I had my first symptom the day before I was supposed to leave for that conference. I thought that I had just slept on my hand or, or slept in a funny way because my, my eye was very sore and the center of my vision it was just, it was very blurry. And I just thought, oh, you know, it's fine. I just probably slept funny, but it didn't go away. And it gradually started to get worse uh, to the point where, and this is awful. And my doctor told me I shouldn't have done it later, but I could look up at the sun for seconds with no issue <gasps> at all. My neurologist was like, why would you do that? And I was like, I needed to test it, you know, <laughs> like I need to know. It's just because people were just, oh, are you sure? Mm, you look fine. And that was the beginning of these. You look fine. So, and I was like, no, I swear I'm losing my vision. Something is going on. And I showed my best friend. I was like, look, I can look up at the sun. And she was like, oh, okay, I think we have an issue. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't know it was anything serious. I still thought we were in the, this is just a, an incident, an isolated incident. I was still in that sort of territory. So I didn't take that seriously. You know, it was all part of this. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm completely fine. You know, we're going to go along with the plan. Brittany travels. That's what she does, you know. So I was just very, you know, dead set on that. But to, to comment on the, the process from there to diagnosis, I saw a GP and, you know, he looked at me, he inspected that. He said, to be honest, you know, you look absolutely fine. And to be, and I, I think we spent most of that visit talking about Vermont than we did about the pain in my eye. <laughs> so that's what I'll remember him for. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> Vermont. And so now when I look back, I'm just like, oh my God, what wasted time. Because he's like, he, you know, he didn't think it was anything serious. He prescribed dry eyes. Before he, he, he left, he was just going to, I said, listen, I, I have to say, I really don't feel right. You know, my eyes never hurt like this before I you know just look at all the directionals up down left right it was so incredibly sore it just felt like there was an elastic band at the the back that was just too tight and it just couldn't move around you know properly and um, he said okay fine you know since you're really pressing it this is also where I learned advocating for yourself he said I'll refer you to an ophthalmologist 
right? Do you want me to keep going or am I talking too long? <laughs> no, this is great. And I just, like, your experience is so relatable on so okay. many fronts. Like, my head okay. is spinning. Just because okay. I've noticed, like, personally, and I don't know, like, some people will say, like, this is a very gendered experience, but, like, I have had that experience with doctors where I just feel like I have to press and say, no, like instinctually, I know that something is not right. And I, it can be really frustrating. So I just want to say like, I, I can relate to how frustrating an experience that must have been to like have to insist to this doctor that like, I know that something isn't right. Yeah, to prove an illness I didn't even know I had. Absolutely ridiculous. But like I said, I told, we had a nicer time talking about Vermont than we ever did about me. So that's what I'll remember him for. Lovely enough guy, but just like, <laughs> uh. But um, so I walked away with my bottle of dry ice um, and um, and he got me an appointment with an ophthalmologist. But he was like, but he was really pressed. He was like, because, you know, and he was telling me, you know, you don't really want to waste these guys time because they only deal with like eye emergencies and things like that. And I was like, I'm, I'm serious, you know, I'll obviously I'll take the fall if there's anything. And he was like, OK, fine, you know, I'll get you an ophthalmologist. And um, I was probably inspected for a few minutes by the ophthalmologist. I was able to get an appointment uh, a few days later. And he said, well, I could tell you what's wrong or I could ch- keep doing tests. And I was like, um, tell me what's wrong. <laughs> you know, maybe I go with that option. And um, he said that it looks like you have optic neuritis. Now, I'd never heard about optic neuritis before until that moment. So I said, okay and what does that mean for me and he said well you know it could be just an isolated you know diagnosis right now of optic neuritis or optic neuritis is often in connection with multiple sclerosis and that would have been the first time that someone had suggested this as a possibility and then it just sort of spiraled from there you know I saw a neurologist I got my MRI done and then I saw a second neurologist who confirmed the diagnosis and I think that for me was like I'm going home I'm going to be in a wheelchair in a month you know I'm going to need a personal nurse it was like Brittany I hope you enjoyed the last four years because that's all you're getting (laughs) yeah I can't imagine like the sense of panic you must have felt especially because like the diagnosis process is so drawn out you spend that entire period of time just imagining the worst on that note is there anything you wish that you had been told during that period of like unknowing and panic that would have helped because I think like like you're saying you were imagining that your life was over I think the ophthalmologist for me, that was probably one of the most challenging experiences because it he was just so cold, so cut and dry with me that it was almost like, this is your turn, da da da, you know, you're, you're, you know, just chop and change. And I just, I just felt like it's just such a cold, awful experience. And that led me to just going down the rabbit hole of googling what on earth is wrong with me because I didn't leave with you know any pamphlets or information you know what to do if you found out you have optic neuritis you know anything like that I was just told that "Mm, it might be connected to MS you know I'll uh, you know I'll schedule you with a neurologist and he just walked out the room and I was just like hey now I don't know what that is but I feel like my life is over (laughs) you know somehow I think it would have been nice to have some information that would have said, don't panic and don't Google everything that this could mean for you. I just, I have so many feelings about the ways that doctors deliver news like this. I know a couple people who are in med school and they've told me like, 
it is different now. Doctors are much more aware that like people have Google at their fingertips and have the ability to like find information on their own. So it's better to empower your patients with the information from your own mouth instead of like allowing them to go down that rabbit hole. Maybe future generations will have an easier time with. with I know. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) I think it makes a difference. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So living with chronic illness doesn't just impact your physical experience of the world. Oftentimes people overlook the impact it has on mental health. What kinds of emotions did you feel like post-diagnosis? Once you were diagnosed, was there any sense of relief? What was that that like post-diagnosis? That's interesting that you mentioned relief because it's not something that I often include in my story because there was this sense of relief that okay at least I know what it is what it's called and you know what I'll have to to do from here but initially I was I was confused I was shocked and this is probably the saddest one for me (laughs) but I was disappointed with my body I felt like it betrayed me you know this was my body that I used to travel you know, from the Bahamas all the way to, you know, to Germany, to the Netherlands, to ice. This is the, you know, this is the body that, that carried me through those things. And, and now I felt like it had turned its back on me, you know, without sounding too dramatic, which I can't remember the time. <laughs> but I, I thought I was so healthy and doing everything right. And so, yeah, I felt like I was in a really healthy place to get what I thought was such sort of like indictment on my my personal situation which of course I learned a lot more about MS from there and that there wasn't really you know anything I could do it was it was in the works I just didn't know about it it's such a scary notion this idea of like being disappointed in your body because I think like like I know personally with GAD sometimes I feel like I can't trust my own feelings or like my own reactions to things which is really like disconcerting and where are you now with it? Now you're a couple years post-diagnosis. Have you found any peace with your body or like your feelings towards your body? I have uh, definitely a lot more than the beginning. I'm not aware of my MS every day. Sure, I take my meds every day, you know, and that sort of thing. But I'm not experiencing relapses every day. Sometimes I have the luxury to forget about MS. And then when I have a flare up, I'm once again aware or when it's time for MRI and you're like, oh God, is there going to be a new lesion or is an old one active or, you know, what's going on with my head and that, then it's all in my face again. So I do think that I've, I've certainly come to peace with it a lot more. The diag, I'd say the diagnosis, what's different now is that it isn't so raw. I've had time to, to process it. And when I'm thinking of making big changes in my life, moving countries, I have to put my health in my top priority. So I'd say that's definitely changed because beforehand it was like I moved to Ireland in 2000, when was that? 13, I think. Uh, just because I met a couch surfer who was camping, you know, in the, the, the garden near where I was working. And she told me about this place in Ireland. I thought, oh, that's great. I'm just going to, you know, I just pick up and go. And that was how I, you know, made those decisions. So now with MS, I have to put my health, you know, in that, that top list of priorities. And that's certainly not something I ever used to do 
I just used to assume that I was fine, you know, and there, there, there doesn't need to be any consideration for it. I know from reading your blog that um, one of your initial fears was that MS would impact your ability to travel. How did you grapple with this fear? It's it's definitely been realizing that I need to plan more. Unfortunately, I I don't feel like I have that luxury of spontaneity anymore to just say, oh, I'm going to go off and do this with no care or concern for my meds or appointments and and all those. So. I would say the way that I deal with it is just accepting that if I want to travel, this is what I have to do. And this means planning my, my blood works have to be done every three months, meds twice a day, neurologist once a year, MRI once a year. So it means that I have to plan my travel around these sort of visits if I want to continue on the path that my medical team and I have made to slow the progression of MS and if I want to to keep traveling. So I'd say that's probably one of the biggest ways. Mm, So it's like a lot more logistical planning and and restrictions and like times that you can travel and length of travel. Yes, and making sure that I have sufficient medication while I'm away as well. That's that's been a, a big one. I can't, I just can't run out. (laughs) And then like when you are traveling, once you're on a trip, are there things that are different compared to prior to your diagnosis? I'm very grateful that I haven't experienced any physical changes um, from being diagnosed with MS. And I'm still, you know, four years since since diagnosis. So of course, I don't know what the future will bring, but for now I can still travel the way, quite the way that I used to before, but I make sure that I have, if I have a checked bag and a carry-on, that I have at least two weeks in my carry-on just in case my checked bag gets lost and then that medication gets lost. So it's this extra awareness for my meds when I'm taking it. And uh, we used to take trips where it's a red eye and then we're walking all day and we don't think about food until the end of the day. And I just can't do that anymore. And um, you know, it makes me a little bit sad, but at the same time, it's just that going back to, if you want to travel, this is what you have to do. Yeah, so it's like making just adjustments to the way that you travel. It almost sounds, sounds like you are now traveling a bit slower than you may have yes. previously. Yes, definitely. We've chatted a lot with travelers who live with disability on the show. Like some of the things you're mentioning are very relatable, like compared to those conversations, needing to be prepared and before traveling, needing to make sure that personal needs can be met throughout the trip. So I think many more people are approaching travel this way than we think. Yeah, absolutely. And just how you mentioned before with coronavirus, making everyone now this this greater awareness about health, it's also this extra caution towards traveling. And if you think about 
so many people who, you know, I've you know, read like people's complaints about, oh, you know, I had to wait this amount of time and I had to do this. And then I think to myself, imagine what a wheelchair user is thinking, you know, when they have to sit on the plane until everyone gets off and then their wheelchair comes or it doesn't come and they have to explain, you know, just all this frustration and confusion and waiting time, you know, and that's what people are complaining. Oh, I had to wait so long. I had to wait, wait, wait. It's, it's this new, perspective towards travel and I saw a an article the other day that said travel is a luxury again because before we just think about oh you know I found this um, great flight I'm going to do this but now it's like oh you got to go to da 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 well good on you you know you managed that good for you so I'd say in that in that respect that perspective towards travel has has definitely changed. And I think in recent years, especially like with these low cost airlines and like flight deals, travel became this very like, oh, you can do it last minute, just hop on a flight and spend like 24 hours in each city, just city hop like across the European continent. And this was like a bit of a detrimental approach to travel, I think coronavirus is causing people to realize we need to slow down the way that we approach travel. And it's interesting that like for you, it's like, yeah, I'm over here doing that already. Yes. Yeah. So it's definitely a shift. And I want this new perspective that, okay, travel is, it's a luxury. I'm so grateful to be able to do this. Let me take the time to actually, you know, read the signs towards visitors, admonishing visitors not to do this or to do this. And and just like you you mentioned, just this this fast travel mentality and looking at the the pollution that it's you know contributed to our planet. Uh, just this this perspective that I can go here, 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 and anywhere, and I don't really have to think about my footprint. I don't have to think about the impact that I'm having. And people you know like to say that well, it's just me one. It's just my one you know person, but it adds up. It really adds up. And I think people are becoming a lot more aware of that. It's just very sad that it it took a devastating pandemic for people to realize it. I think so too. Um, I noticed you also mentioned on your blog that flexibility has been the key for you for traveling with MS. Can you explain why flexibility is so important? Flexibility, I'd say that's something I felt that I needed to have before MS, but especially now when it comes to chronic fatigue, which is one of the symptoms of MS. And one of the ways it can exhibit itself is when you wake up and you feel so heavy and done, like your your body feels like it's like bound to the bed, that you struggle to get up, you can't form words and you, you know, and sometimes it just comes out of nowhere. Other times it could be if you overexerted yourself the day before. So I've found that I need to be open to like something like that might happen when I'm on a trip and I might have to to cancel things or I might have to go even slower than I used to. Right. Yeah. You know, so I I actually don't talk about this very often and I've noticed like people do have questions about it. I have very, very severe food allergies that can like it's put me in hospital multiple times throughout life and they're they're very life threatening. I could I could die if I ingest one of these foods. And while traveling, especially, it can be very challenging, especially your comment about not taking care of yourself, like taking the medication or telling others about the condition that you are living with. 
it's relatable to me in the sense that I know when I traveled, especially when I was younger and I would travel alone, I would not tell people about my allergies. And you know, you're in a hostel and it's like everyone's going out to dinner. And I realize now, like as an adult, that that was very reckless and you have to accept that it's part of your life and share that with others because others need to be able to help you if you need that help. And the issue was that like, say I had gone out to dinner and had a reaction and I hadn't told anyone, this is what will happen to me if I react. This this is where my medication is. This is what has to happen if I'm reacting. So I think this like, the way in which we deny (laughs) can be detrimental to ourselves a lot of the time. And that's something I had to learn like throughout life because I was born with these allergies and it took me like really until I was in my late 20s to to understand, no, this is something I need to like be able to talk to people about. Yeah, because when when we travel, it's nice to be uncomplicated. You know what I mean? Let's do this. Oh, yeah, that sounds good to me. Let's go here. Oh, here I come. You know, and then everyone's like, oh, that Brittany, she just loves to have, you know, such a good time. And I, I, I do. But now it's, you know, things have changed and I have to I have to come to terms with them. So are there any challenges, like specific challenges or stories about challenges that you could share with us um, that have presented themselves while you're traveling with MS? So it's just like what we talked about, uh, not being the, you know, not being the complicated one or and and also keeping my, my personal life private. And then, you know, realizing that I can't, I can't exactly be that way anymore because if something were to happen to me or with you, with your food allergy, then, you know, we need people to rally around to know, okay, we need to step in. We need to um, help this person. And I've, I've really had to, to overcome that challenge, learning to communicate more with people around me, whoever I'm traveling with, to let them know that, you know, most days I am okay, but there might be a day or there might be a moment where just something doesn't feel right something's a bit off in my body and I need to communicate that maybe slow down or stop or that might have to be the the end of touring for that day so yeah I had a bit of an embarrassing episode in Santa Cruz and actually Copenhagen as well when I don't eat properly with my meds it just it feels like it's destroying me from the inside out like with abdominal cramps uh, cramps I usually end up in fetal position on this one unfortunately <gasps> and this was just me you know I'm easygoing oh sure I'll just have you know a piece of bread as we walk out the door while I take my meds and it, it didn't work out and I was reduced to tears <laughs> in both situations so that's that's definitely something I've had to to overcome just I have to communicate and I have to act on my behalf I, I have to and this is this is so weird for me but I have to advocate for myself even in my free time <laughs> you know <laughs> I think it can be really hard to advocate for yourself like especially as a woman because like as a woman we're like socialized to be passive and advocating for yourself is like it's like you're telling someone else like I matter and I need this you're asking for help and attention. And I think that's like a really adverse feeling for a lot of women. It is finding this, what does it mean for me to take up space? You know, what is my space? How far am I supposed to to go with this? And I can't assume that me looking like I'm in pain or discomfort is enough for people to pick up on that. Sometimes I have to just say it 
And if they judge me, if they think less of me, that's on them. I, I want to continue to travel with them as I don't want it to become an issue. And if something were to change in my body in a year or two, I'd be so angry with myself that I didn't do everything that I could to travel safely, to travel properly uh, in this time that I am able to. And do you have any tips for people about how how you can well advocate for yourself or if or if advocating for yourself is something you struggle with? What strategies have worked for you in overcoming that hurdle? I'd say if someone is still finding it difficult to verbally communicate what it is that they need, maybe writing it down. And if you have like a, a WhatsApp travel group or something, just being like, hey, guys, just a heads up, you know, and send that that message, you know, that you've already thought through, you've already until you're able to just verbalize it, which I think is really important because, you know, you don't want to be like, you know, three hours into a six hour hike when you realize, oh, God, my my something's happening with my body. I need to stop before, you know, and then the people around you have no idea what you're talking about. They have nothing to reference to. So if you can't verbalize it, I would write it, you know, just to, to get that to people. And um, as you mentioned before, so much of life is just finding this, this great appreciation for our body. And, you know, you do that and your body will look after you and all that. So remembering you are important. Your health is important and what you have to say is important. It's easy to already think what people are thinking, you know, but try not to go into that place. Just what it is that you need to, to say that you need. But it, but we really have to, to, to know or I, I don't know if you can fake that one till you make it that your health is important. I love your point about finding ways like if verbalizing is hard, which personally I do find that difficult, finding other ways to communicate or express it. Like one tactic I've had with the allergies is to, if I'm out for dinner with people that I know I haven't told about the allergy, sometimes I'll just like put my EpiPen on the table. And then right. like, that's a little signal. And sometimes people will ask and then it's like, okay, you've sort of organically opened up the discussion without having to awkwardly say, oh, hey, I have to tell you something about myself that like, I really don't want to. So I've found that can be a good strategy as well. Just like creating a sort of trigger for the conversation that isn't verbal <laughs> oh that's very good they they see it they you know open the conversation about it oh that's very good oh look at you that's a good one <laughs> <laughs> um so accessibility and travel is something that we touch on pretty often on this show we've learned like just in making this show how present ableism is in the travel industry even the lack of wheelchair accommodation on airlines like just straight up lack of it but for chronic illness, I think it can be a little trickier to identify ableism because it can be so invisible to others. So in your experience, are there ways in which the travel industry could be more accommodating? I've had a conversation with a few people on Instagram about this, just for, for those who feel that they fall into the invisible illness category. And it's this, this imagination or this wondering if, if I was bleeding or if I was completely bandaged or if, you know, you could see that my bones had been broken or that, you know, there was blood, would you then take what I'm saying more seriously rather than you're just looking at someone who in your imagination seems that 
they don't need what it is that you're requesting. And then, you know, maybe the, the denial of that need or the questioning of that need comes because they're not able to, to identify with what it is that you're talking about. I've spoke to some people as well about traveling with a cane or their occasional need for a wheelchair. And, you know, they, they get stares, they get questions, especially um, if they're a bit younger and people want to know, oh, do you actually need that? Or is that something you just listen to people, believe them. Maybe the people who have faked illness in the past to jump a queue or so have made it difficult for people with actual illness or if it's the age, I'm not sure. But it, it takes, you know, someone, I need a wheelchair. Okay, you know, here we I will do my best, you know, to, to get it. And that makes an experience just so difficult. Uh, sorry, it makes it so much easier to be believed, to be trusted that yes, you know what, you don't want to be questioned, you know, you've dealt with your illness almost or most of your life or, you know, within a few years or whenever you were diagnosed and to be questioned on the tarmac is just, I think it just must be mortifying. Just educating people on the importance of believing without seeing. Yes, that's a good one. Yes. And I think that's like a very important lesson, not just with chronic illness, but like, for so, so many other issues, like especially important issues that we're seeing today, like socially and culturally, it's like you don't need proof to believe someone else's experience. Just believe when they share something with you that that is their experience. Um, so how can those of us who aren't experiencing chronic illness be or sh- show support or be supportive to those who are? Um, yeah, I'd say that connects just what we were talking about in believing the person listening and the big one that I've seen and a lot of people they've taken it from a humorous approach but there is a deeper meaning and it's avoid giving unsolicited advice and when you hear that someone has an invisible illness or you know this is going on a chronic illness and then to say oh if you were to drink this or if you were to try this or you'd be cured in like two weeks you know something like that so I've been yeah so I've been seeing a lot of people protesting against unsolicited advice I'm just sharing with this I'm sharing this with you because you asked or because the situation has come up where I've had to or I felt the need to share it with you but I think there are I think there are some people who appreciate the advice but there are definitely those who have probably tried all those things and more and are really trying to to you know come to grips with what it is that they have and what they're dealing with the big one for me is not asking me if I'm sure that's what is happening or I have been asked this one before and that's why I just can't forget it. Um, is it all in your head? <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. I know that one, that, that one really hurt my feelings. Is, is it all in your head? And you know, if I was as confident then, because that was at the start of my diagnosis, if I was as confident then as I am now, I would say, and this is a bit dark, forgive me, I'd say, sure, the brain lesions are in my head. So yeah, it kind of <laughs> is all in my head. So thank you for reminding me <laughs> of that. But, um, but yeah, just whip people. out an MRI and show them like right here, here, and here. I know. Stop. I've got it on compact disc. I'm not afraid to show it. <laughs> oh my God. So yeah, just believing people. It's, it's, and sometimes it's still a bit embarrassing to me. Like I said, I'm, I'm still learning how to communicate my needs while I'm traveling or at home. And it is, it's being vulnerable to tell someone I'm struggling, you know, and you don't feel, you don't want to be the one 
that's the reason that everyone goes home or anything like that. I mean, something so dramatic hasn't happened to me yet. Yeah, there is this level of vulnerability telling people my needs or that I'm struggling or that I don't feel okay. So it's certainly not something I enjoy sharing. I'm definitely not bragging in any way, and I'm certainly not making it up. Yeah. So on that note, what are some misconceptions or stereotypes about MS that you'd like to smash? Ooh, good question. Probably that everyone experiences MS the same way some people think that, or what works for John also works for Tim. And that's just, it's not the case at all. We experience it differently. We treat it differently. We have different degrees of pain and discomfort and treatments and the progression of illness will manifest in different ways and at a different pace so there you go that's like the record for different in one paragraph I think I said it like 10 times but <laughs> that's the <laughs> that's like the, the the big takeaway is that it it's not the same for everyone Mm-hmm. So one of our listeners actually had a question for you. She wanted oh. to know if you have any tips for managing pain while in tough travel spots. So like if you're on a long bus ride and you're experiencing pain, are there things that you've discovered help with that experience? Great question, because I have gradually developed this this oh, this growing back pain and I find that I have to do a lot more stretching. On my last long haul flight, I was like, oh my God, I'm a pacer. I've never been a pacer on a flight before, but look at me, I'm pacing. So <laughs> I think it's it's being adaptable to that change. You might need to, to get up, even though you don't need to go to the, let's say it's a long bus ride, as you mentioned, uh, maybe you don't need to go to the bathroom or for a smoke break on that stuff, but get up move, stretch. You might look a little bit silly, but you're saving your, your body. And if you have been prescribed any painkillers, just making sure that you can you know have them and that you're using them wisely. But I would say movement has been something that's really... I don't, I don't know what's going on with my body. It could also be getting older. I have no idea. But um, that would definitely be my advice. If you can introduce any sort of different movement or position that is highly recommended even if you have a um like a hoodie or something that or a coat that you can fold up and just roll is at the your lower back if it is you know a lower back pain or if you can elevate your feet um you want your body to be your friend whilst you travel so just trying to change position and trying to eat properly and stay hydrated as well these really come in handy i think that's awesome advice i'm definitely a pacer myself <laughs> just because I need I need something to do on flights. Right, right. So what is next for you in travel? I know right now it's a little bit difficult to make any like concrete travel plans, but do you have any upcoming plans? Maybe like even just locally and throughout Scotland or Ireland? You know, I had dreams of North Africa and Asia this year. And every time I go back to these thoughts, I'm like, Brittany, get over it. It's not happening. But uh, but I will stay local. I will stay in Scotland. And um, I'm on a student visa at the moment. So and that expires in January. So I will be back to the Bahamas regardless in December. So hopefully, uh, based on the restrictions there, we'll see. I'll do some island hopping. I've really been looking forward to visiting all the inhabited islands. It's been a goal of mine for a while. Can't rush the brush. So if restrictions are on, then I won't be doing that. But uh, but definitely I'll be in the Bahamas by the end of this year. 
Amazing. Well, I wanted to give you the opportunity to share with everyone where they can find you. Um, you can plug your blog and anything else you want to share um, for listeners who would like to get in touch with you. Cool. Well, you can find me on my Instagram, Twitter, Facebook page, and my website, thetravelingms.com. All the other social medias are The Traveling MS. And I mostly talk about the Bahamian experience, my travels and volunteering abroad, and also what all that means having multiple sclerosis now. So it just all comes together. And I like to think I have a good sense of humor. So I always appreciate that along the way. <laughs> I'm so glad we connected. Like, who knew an Instagram takeover would, would get the two of us in touch? I'm so happy. I know, me too. I feel like I have a friend over in Canada now. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lore. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Instagram, and consider showing us your love on Patreon. On Patreon, you can pledge just $5 a month, which directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. Bye.